0: Hi, my name is Joel Carney, and I'm going to be reading Philippians 1, 27-30, and here's what it says. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit contending, as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for Him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw, I had and now hear that I still have. Good morning. Welcome to Gateway Online. I saw a cartoon this week that I think fairly summarizes our overall response to the coronavirus. The cartoon said, water murder hornets and how much toilet paper do we need to buy? So if you were to drill down underneath all of the weirdness of our current situation and underneath all of our concerns, you'd probably get to something like, what now? That's certainly a piece of what all of us are feeling. Our dishwasher broke last week. What now? Financially is now the right time. Should a repair person come into our home? What if the kids don't go back to school this fall? What now? The car needs repair. What now? The Outer Banks just opened up. Should we take the week we planned in June to go? What about the week in August? We can cancel now and get our refund. If we wait until July we can't. What if the beaches have to close down again because of resurgence? What now? And that question has a little more anxiety in it. We maybe even realize, I heard a counselor speaking on a webinar this week and he illustrated our usual stress level, held up a bottle of water, and then he said given the current state of affairs, Our lives have additional stress liquid that most of us aren't even factoring in, we may not even be aware of. So big issues and small ones, what now? This is exactly the kind of angst, by the way, that Paul addressed in his letter to the Philippians. These friends of Paul's were being tossed about a bit and their lives had been unsettled by their newfound faith and not all of it was in good ways. Paul is hundreds of miles away and in prison, so his life is not exactly all up and to the right either. What now, Paul? Well, what Paul shares in the next section of the letter is rich and is a great reminder for us. So let's do three things in this conversation today. Let's remind ourselves of some of the details of the setting for this letter, because I think that will help add some texture to what we hear. And then let's work our way straight through the passage Joel read for us as Paul wrote it and see how he answered the what now concern. This will break down into three kind of here's what it looks like points. Then let's go back up through the passage in reverse using a different lens because there's some really rich stuff here. And this will also break into three uh, here's what it means points. All right. So let's remember that the passage was written. Let's do the review. Let's remember that the passage was written in the world of the first century Roman Empire. Philippi was an active, fairly important city with a very diverse population, including a large number of retired Roman soldiers. That would have meant that Philippi would have had more than its share of Roman citizens. And in that day and for that age, that fact held considerable cachet. There was a word that Greek speakers used, omai, which meant something like live as a free person or live as a free citizen. It was built on the word polis, which is Greek for city. When applied to Roman citizenship, Politeuomai suggested some rights and some responsibilities. So imagine if you were a parent using this word, addressing your child, you would have been implying something like, hey, walk proudly and represent well. This was the feeling that Roman citizens generally had. And because of this cachet, they tended to feel fairly secure about their place in the world. I think this was part of the reason why they were so lenient toward religious expressions. And they were. The Roman world was a very diverse world spiritually. Almost every kind of belief was tolerated. But as I suggested a few weeks ago when we talked about this, Roman spirituality was an intensely personal thing. I don't mean that they didn't talk about it. I mean that they didn't do spirituality together. Religion was mostly done in the privacy of your own home, usually praying to your ancestors. It's not that Romans didn't pray to the gods, but that kind of thing was a sporadic occasional activity it was aimed at very specific kinds of requests for example you might pray to one god to give you favor in battle or to another to help your crops grow or to make your womb fruitful and even in such cases you would come as an individual religionist and offer your prayers personally religion was not a group activity so you can understand why romans were especially suspicious of christians first of all christians worship and obeyed jesus of nazareth i mean That would make no sense to a Roman. As a good Roman citizen, you worshiped and obeyed the emperor. That was part of the politeumai. After all, the emperor carried the biggest sword and he wasn't afraid to use it. Legions of soldiers did his bidding. Jesus of Nazareth? He never even commanded a small company of soldiers. He had no cities named after him, no statues of him anywhere. Why would you brag about and honor a person like that? Besides, wasn't he dead? perhaps even more confusing for Romans, Christians gathered for their religious activity. They sang songs together. They told stories to one another about things their God had done throughout history. They told stories to one another about things Jesus had done when he was with them. And Romans were suspicious of gatherings. You couldn't plan a revolt if you couldn't gather to plan it. So Christians were often regarded with misgiving. They were often socially held at bay or worse. And this affected their relationships, of course, at times. It also affected their employment. And at certain periods, in the first three centuries especially, it meant all-out persecution. So what now, Paul? What do we do now? And beginning with this paragraph and for the rest of the letter, Paul addresses the Philippians and their concerns. Up to this point, he's talked about himself, both his circumstances and his regard for them. But now he turns his attention to their situation. So don't snooze on this observation. It's interesting to me that Paul almost always addresses all concerns by starting with the 10,000-foot view. So here's what I mean. You know, the big-picture view. Paul knows that the answer to what now, even the most practical what nows, always begins with who we are, what we value, and what drives us. Even the most everyday practical things. Remember our discussion last week about Paul's central drive? These are the things, that what values us, what drives us, these are the things that should always be the touchstone for us. This is the beginning point. Whenever we think about what now. So in the paragraph right before the one that we just read, Paul had talked about how he might be set free from prison and be able to be of encouragement to them, or he might be of more use to God's cause if he was killed. But... And then he turns his attention to the Philippians in verse 27. Whatever happens to me, you must conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And right there, he uses our word, politeuomai. He's speaking to people like the Philippian jailer, who was probably a Roman soldier and a Roman citizen. And he's speaking to Lydia, who seems to have been a successful businesswoman and may have been a citizen herself. He's no doubt speaking to several others who are not citizens, but certainly wish that they were. They might feel that they would have had some additional protections against the pressure that's being put on them because of their faith if they were citizens. Oh, Lydia, you think you have it bad. You've got nothing to complain about. At least you're a citizen. I'm nothing here. So what now, Paul? Well, I'll tell you what Paul says. Represent, too, am I, but I'm not even a citizen, Paul. I don't mean represent Rome. I mean represent Jesus. Represent His story, His life-changing impact on your life and on the world. Walk proudly and represent. am I? Conduct yourself rightly in a manner, and here he uses another rich word, worthily of the gospel of Christ. In everything you do, everything you say, represent that. In all of your decisions, let the end point lead toward that. When George Shultz was Secretary of State under Ronald Reagan, He kept a large globe in his office, and whenever newly appointed ambassadors had an interview with him, Schultz would test them. He would say, you have to go over to the globe and prove to me that you can identify your country. So they would go over, spin the globe, put their finger on the country to which they were being sent, and Schultz would later say, no one ever got it wrong. Fortunately, that would be embarrassing. One time, Schultz's old friend and former Senate Majority Leader Mike Mansfield was appointed to be ambassador to Japan. And Schultz even put him to the test. This time, however, Ambassador Mansfield spun the globe, and he put his hand on the United States, and he said, that's my country. After his tenure, Schultz told this story many times, and he said after this happened, he would always recount it to outgoing ambassadors, once he were being sent out, and he would tell them, never forget, you're over there in that country, but your country is the United States, and you're there to represent us. That's what Paul is saying here. He's making the same point even more clearly in chapter 3, verse 20 of Philippians. Paul says, our citizenship is in heaven. Same word, by the way, politeuma. So what does it look like to politeuma tie worthily of the gospel of Christ? Well, Paul suggests three things, doesn't he? First, it looks like standing firm in one spirit. This is a military term a military term. Paul has in mind those legions of Roman soldiers who stood shoulder to shoulder, linking up shields as they go into battle. I think most of us have a much less muscular view of our faith. We forget that our lives are lived on a battlefield. Many of our what now first century concerns would disappear if we just kept in mind that we are at war. Comfort and convenience are often the wrong goals altogether. There is a spiritual war being waged around us. All right, if you're skeptical, if that sounds too whooshy, I get it. But just consider that it might be very naive of us to think that reality is limited to to, to what we can see and test and reproduce. There are always spiritual forces, literal spiritual forces, At work behind the scenes of the events of our lives, and some of those forces mean us harm. And we don't understand our lives fully if we don't factor that in. We must stand firm in one spirit. Secondly, we must contend as one person, or can be translated, strive together as one for the faith of the gospel. Paul says, and this. Strive together. This contend is an athletic term. It was used of the great teams in the Olympic Games. There's a contest going on, Paul is saying, and the stakes are high. The hearts and minds of our children and our parents and our siblings and our grandchildren and our neighbors and our friends are at stake. Contend together, strive together. Notice how Paul appeals to their unity and ours. He's heard about some squabbles among the Philippians, and that will not do. The stakes are too high. The field is too dangerous. It's time to politeumai. You know, I'm afraid that we Americans are sometimes more committed to our political tribe than we are to our spiritual one, and that will not do. The stakes are too high. Thirdly, Paul encourages us to not be frightened in any way by those who oppose us. So one, stand firm in one spirit. Two, contend together as one person for the faith, like a great athletic team. And three, not be frightened by those who oppose us. Okay, listen, these Philippians understood opposition. They were experiencing real opposition, at times even persecution for their faith. Paul certainly had. So this was not a throwaway comment. This was, again, a muscular charge to move forward as a free citizen of the kingdom in faith and not in fear. Some of you have had similar experiences in your upbringing, but many of us, at least those of us who grew up in the West, have never faced anything like real persecution for our faith. Our biggest fear concern has been those times when we've been afraid to identify our faith because we don't want to look like some weird religious person. Still, I think this charge is worth hearing for us. And I'm going to give you two reasons why I think we need to hear this charge. First, The world is much smaller now than it used to be, especially given the advent of social media. So we regularly hear about situations, serious persecution around the world today, things that we wouldn't have heard about even 20 years ago. And we should be armed to pray for those fellow believers that they would not be frightened in any way by those who oppose them. I get this digital report every week called Committed to Pray, and it recounts three incidences of intense persecution that happened somewhere in the world that week, every week. And each week I pray for those families or, or those churches sometimes. A second reason I think we need to hear this charge not be afraid of those who oppose us, is because I believe this is coming for us. I believe my children and certainly my grandchildren will live in a different spiritual atmosphere than I've lived in. I'm going to say more about that at the end today. Okay, let's move on. Paul continues, The muscularity of your politum oh my, and especially the fact that you're not frightened in any way, he says, is a sign to them that they will be destroyed and that you will be saved, and that by God. I don't know if you're watching the documentary on ESPN about the Chicago Bulls, but if you're an NBA fan, I know you are. It's called The Last Dance. Apologies to those of you who aren't fans, but in one of the episodes, they talk about the rivalry between the Chicago Bulls and the Detroit Pistons in the early 90s. Now, the Pistons were a very, very physical team, so what they lacked in talent, and they were very talented, but, but they supplemented their talent with brute physicality. And concerning Chicago, they made it their strategy to literally beat them up, especially Michael Jordan. They wanted to punish them every time they came into the lane and mug them if they tried to dunk the ball. It's no surprise there was no love lost between those two teams. Early in the rivalry, the Pistons dominated the Bulls, and it was fascinating to hear Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen from the Bulls' perspective talk about the transition from the Pistons' dominance to the Bulls' dominance. They talked about how they demonstrated to the Pistons that they were not afraid, that they would not back down. Once they had established that they were going to keep coming, keep coming to the basket, keep coming into the lane, keep scoring, once they had established they were not afraid, Jordan Pippin said the spell was broken. When we live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, no matter what the world throws at us, when we stand firm like a Roman legion, when we contend together like a focused athletic team, when we move forward lovingly without fear, then that becomes a sign to ourselves and to those outside of the faith that their way of doing life is bound for destruction and our way is the way of life and salvation. Then Paul continues, For it has been granted to you, on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. It has been granted to you, literally, given generously to you. The privilege has been afforded to you to believe on him, right? Right? Our belief has come to us as a gift, but not only so, it has been granted to you, given generously to you, the privilege has been afforded to you to suffer for Him. In what universe is suffering a gift? Now, the Bible doesn't always answer this question. Often it is frustratingly silent about suffering, to be honest, but indirectly, Paul has addressed it here. Now, let's acknowledge that he's really addressing suffering for the faith. He's not specifically addressing like our cancer diagnosis or the death of our parent or a child. But some of what he says even applies in those instances of suffering, even to the ones that are unimaginably difficult. So now let's throw it in reverse and look back up through this charge to the Philippians with the question of suffering in mind. In what sense is suffering a gift? And again, I think Paul says three things indirectly in answer to that question. First of all, suffering is a gift in the sense that we are identified with him in suffering with Christ. He says it directly, doesn't he? It has been granted to you to suffer for him. And this is an echo of what Paul said earlier in the previous paragraph when he said his chains were for Christ. I remember hearing the testimony of Helen Rosevere many years ago. She ran a mission school in Africa that was attacked by a rogue gang of Muslim thugs. After ransacking the school, they violently abused her physically for a night and a day. I was astounded to hear her say that at some point early in that process, her anguish and fear and pain gave way to a powerful sense of privilege. That was her word. She was washed with wave after wave of privilege, knowing that she was identified with her Savior through this suffering. Secondly, our suffering confirms our salvation. Now, when these New Testament guys use this word salvation, they're really just referring to their relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And their experience has been so transformational, so bone shattering, you get the sense that they have torn apart the language to look for a word to adequately describe it. This experience, this salvation, this utter delightful transformation is confirmed through suffering. Our suffering, specifically our lack of fear and our our living with muscularity in the face of it, that's a sign to others and to ourselves that we will be saved. Our suffering confirms our identification with Christ. It confirms our salvation. And finally, our suffering confirms that we are on God's side. We are the ones who can contend together. We are the ones who can stand firm as one person, a part of God's legion, a member of God's team. And this is critically important because God's side is ultimately the winning side. We are citizens of God's city. All right, I don't know what the takeaway is for you, but... Let me share what it is for me, if I may. I am often far too casual about my faith. This charge from Paul reminds me of the seriousness of my faith. It reminds me how important this is, just how high the stakes are. It reminds me that my faith is a robust, muscular adventure, and I'm missing out if I don't live it that way. Let me tell you specifically how I get confused about this. For those of you who lean left, I don't know if you're looking at home if this is left or right, but for those of you who lean left, and I mean politically and socially, yes, I'm talking about you fellow MSNBC junkies, I think we get seduced by the culture. Come on, some of you are making way too big a deal about this, we think. Why does it always seem like you're at war with the culture? Relax, you're taking yourself too seriously. And there's some truth in that, by the way. But we're also in danger of being the proverbial frog in the kettle. You know, a frog will immediately jump out of the pot of boiling water, but if you put a frog in cool water and slowly raise the temperature, then the frog will boil, literally to death. And those of us who lean left are in danger of not recognizing and standing firm against the dramatic shifts in our culture. Oh, you know, if that's your thing, who am I to address that? It's not my thing. My thing is spirituality, but but that's cool. We've been seduced. We've forgotten how high the stakes are. We've forgotten that we're at war. This is big stuff and and we have to stand firm. We have to contend together, even if it's uncomfortable. Even if we seem out of step with the culture, especially if we seem out of step with the culture, it's too important. And for those of us who lean right, yes, I'm talking about my fellow fox junkies. Well, I think we've been seduced in an entirely different way. Well, we're all about the struggle. In fact, we're pretty mad about it. But we usually end up fighting for some particular moral or social or political issue. Fair enough. Many of those issues need to be addressed. But that's not what the real fight is even about. That's not what we're what we're striving as one person for. That's not what we're contending for. Worse still, many of us end up striving for and standing firm for America. Now I love this country. I believe she's the greatest in the history of the world. I love and admire those who serve her with their blood and treasure. But America is not the heart of the fight. God was moving and building His kingdom long before we wrote our Constitution. And He'll be doing so long after America has faded from the scene unless Jesus brings an end to human history first. If you're picking your tribe on the basis of Americana, then you may very well be in the wrong tribe. The issue is not America. The issue is the gospel. That's what unites us. That's what's at stake. Paul chose a particularly civic word, politeuomai, and turned it on its head to make his point. Your citizenship has been transferred, and so must your allegiance. And we can't be casual about it. So... Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but you will be saved in that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now here that I still have. Let's pray. Father, remind us of the muscularity of our call and the seriousness of the stakes. I pray, Lord, that you would inspire us, equip us to stand firm as one person and contend together for the faith of the gospel not being afraid of those who oppose us. Lord, that we would be able to rejoice in the gift of belief and in the gift of suffering, identifying fully with you. Hear us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining us.